Ήχερα δεν αυτό γεφθάμενον της αρκός αυτού και τούτο προλαβών της Αγίας ευχόης ο άρτης της είναι επικράτης είναι αντίστασικά επικράτης Listening to Vexed, a program on the Ephesus School Network. I'm Andrea Bacchus, your curator through biblical literature and its world and culture. Just as a museum curator selects, acquires, cares for, repairs objects, and discovers frauds and counterfeits, I'll be sifting through our world and culture for examples to help us better understand. The biblical text. In today's episode, I will explain the distinction between eisegesis and exegesis. These terms are used in the context of biblical studies. It's important to explain them because they'll be the basis for future discussion on this program. Let's start with the basic definitions. Both eisegesis and exegesis are from the Greek. They are compound words, one word comprised of two separate words. For example, in English, grandmother is a compound word as is mailbox. Let's start with eisegesis. Eisegesis is spelled E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. It's comprised of two words. The first word is eis, which means in or into. And the second word is jesus, which means to lead or guide. So we have to lead into a text, to bring the reader's understanding, their assumptions to a text. Eisegesis is the process of interpreting a text in such a way as to introduce one's presuppositions or biases to a text. In this approach, we start with our own idea and then read that idea into a text. We are first, the text is second. We all have some experience of this from writing papers in school. You have a topic and you form a thesis and then you look through various books and articles for evidence to support your thesis which you have already formed. And you make decisions and take shortcuts. There's no way to read every relevant source, so we skim books and pick and choose what suits our argument. So if you've got a book on building a house and you're writing a paper on windows, you're going to skip to the chapter on windows and ignore the chapters on installing plumbing and electric. And that may be fine for schoolwork, 
but it's a problem when it comes to biblical studies. In a way, one can understand how this happens. Modern life creates a setting in which we are picking and choosing and giving our opinions about things all day long. And also, books and ideas are common now. We have problems of abundance, not scarcity, when it comes to ideas. And more than that, we're no longer limited to paper books. We've got electronic digital books now. The invention of the e-reader is a major shift in access. Steve Jobs gave us a thousand songs in our pocket with the iPod, and Jeff Bezos has given us a thousand books in our pocket with the Kindle. The Kindles have gotten smaller and lighter and easier to read with less glare in sunlight. The Kindle paper is a useful little device. We live in this overwhelm of ideas and options, and we control them. Take reading a book, for example. We can open to page one if we like, or we can start reading in the middle, as we might with our example of selecting the chapter on Windows. We might enjoy a book of short stories and skip to the third or fourth story. We are free to read ahead and read only what interests us. Or we might advance to the end of a book as we do when we become bored with a story or eager to know how it ends. We might jump to the end to discover who the killer is or who the father is. We want to know what happens to the characters we have come to know in our reading. When we read a book, we control it. We decide. This is risky when it comes to the Bible. If we fixate on our concerns, our preferences, and bring them to the biblical text, we will not hear the story as it is written. So, to recap, when we impose ourselves onto a text, when we lead, this is easy Jesus. Now, consider that it is much harder to impose yourself onto a text when you are hearing a text. One of my laments is that adults seldom have books read to them anymore. It seems the prerogative of children. But now with audiobooks, perhaps we will see a revival of this. When a book is read to you, you are at the mercy of the reader. They can stop and start or pause whenever they want. Children know this from bedtime stories. If a parent gets distracted while reading a child's favorite story, and stops reading, especially if it is at a particularly exciting part of the story, the child will let you know. There's a charming scene in the 1987 movie, The Princess Bride, which depicts this dynamic so well. The hearer of a story can get completely engrossed in the telling of the story, and all the while, 
the reader controls the reading and, in effect, controls the hearer. He holds power over the hearer. In the movie, the grandpa, played by Peter Falk, is reading the story The Princess Bride to his grandson, a young Fred Savage. Young Fred is sick and has stayed home from school. Grandpa, seated at young Fred's bedside, begins to read the story. At the beginning of the movie, young Fred rolls his eyes at old Grandpa, doesn't want to hear a stupid story, but reluctantly consents. And as Grandpa begins to read, young Fred gets engrossed in the tale. In this particular scene, the tension is high and young Fred is struggling to understand surprising developments in the story. Let's listen in on the scene. Grandpa, Grandpa, wait, wait. What did Fezzik mean he's dead? I mean, he didn't mean dead. Was this only faking, right? You want me to read this or not? Who gets Humperdinck? I don't understand. Who kills Prince Humperdinck? At the end, somebody's got to do it. Is it Inigo who? Nobody. Nobody kills him. He lives. You mean he wins? Jesus, Grandpa, what did you read me this thing for? You know, you've been very sick and you've taken this story very seriously. I think we ought to stop now. No, I'm okay. I'm okay. Sit down. All right. Okay. All right, now let's see. Where were we? Oh, yes. In the pit of despair. Did you hear how Grandpa teases young Fred? He threatens to close the book, knowing that young Fred will beg him to keep reading. Grandpa, the reader, is in control of the reading. And young Fred, the hearer, is held captive, forced to submit to the story the way it is being told. Let's turn next to exegesis. As with esegesis, exegesis is from the Greek. Exegesis is spelled E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. It's comprised of two words. The first word is ex, which means out or out of. And the second word is Jesus, which means to lead or guide. So we have to lead out of the text. This is an awkward way of wording it, but it means that the text leads. Our understanding comes out of the text. The text comes first, the reader second. The meaning of the text comes from the text. The reader refrains from bringing his assumptions, perspectives, or philosophies to his reading of the text. He submits to it and allows his mind, his understanding to be formed by it, the way that young Fred submitted to the story. You might compare it 
to the way a medical student might read an anatomy book. He receives what the book has to teach him about anatomy. The student doesn't argue with it, neither does he impose his opinion on it. He receives it, receives what it has to teach him. This is the approach endorsed on this program. Let's look at some examples from the Bible and I'll describe an eisegesis of the given example and then offer an exegesis. Let's start with the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. An example of eisegesis is the way we as readers tend to want to approach Genesis with our human-centeredness. We assume it is about us, about humankind, and we begin reading under this assumption. With such an assumption, it's easy to see how we might gloss over the first verses in chapter 1 and the details given in verses 1 to 25, and then start to pay attention at verse 26, where we hear about man being made in the image and likeness of God, and man having dominion over the earth. And this gives us certainty that we are the center of God's universe. Yes, we know that Adam will disobey God further along in the story, but still, somehow, the story is about us about the people. But on a close and careful hearing, we find that man does not appear in the story until the sixth day. The heavens, the earth, the vegetation, the great sea creatures, the birds, and the land animals are created before man. They are first. As you continue to hear the reading, both the land animals and man come from the ground, from the Adama. Father Paul Tarazi, in his commentary on the book of Genesis, argues that this detail is an expression that man and the land animals are closely connected. They are on equal footing in God's eyes. The first instance of Adama in Genesis is in chapter 1, verse 25, referring to the land animals, everything that creeps upon the ground, the Adama. And then in verse 26, we again hear this word Adama, but this time in the masculine as Adam for man. A hearer of the text in Hebrew would readily hear the connection between the Adama and Adam. Father Paul explains, By the time we encounter the term Adam in Genesis 1.26, which is specific to the human being, we have already heard its sound in the previous verse, verse 25, in conjunction with the other animals. Thus, to the hearer, the text sounds to the ear as though the ground functions as the mother of both beast and man. 
you have to account for these details as you continue to hear the story. If you fixate on verse 26, on man having dominion over the earth, you're missing the flow of the story and its intention, which is to hold human arrogance in check. Father Tarazi makes a compelling case that Genesis chapters 1 through 4 is not the story of man. It's the story of the heavens and the earth, God's entire creation. The human being is just one of the elements of creation. The way the story is expressed and all the details given belittle the human being and put constraints around him. Another example of eisegesis is the iconic story of Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, we are introduced to Cain and Abel. Back in the 1990s, the American journalist Bill Moyers hosted a show, which was a panel discussion with theologians and other scholars about the book of Genesis, called Genesis, A Living Conversation. And they were talking about the story of Cain and Abel and deliberating about the psychology of Cain and Abel. Was Cain rejected by God? Was it sibling rivalry? What does it say about justice in the world and violence and human nature? And is God just? They were taking their sense of the story, the skeleton of the story, and pulling the story out of the book and then talking about themselves, about their own preoccupations. But the way the story is written is not talking about human preoccupations. It certainly is not interested in psychology. It is a Semitic text, and Semitic texts deal in tangibles, things that can be known through the senses, not abstractions or cogitations of the human mind. The names tell the story. Names in the Bible have meanings. Cain, whose name comes from the verb which means to possess or acquire, kills Abel. Abel, in Hebrew, means vanishing breath, vapor. It's the same word we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. Hebel Hebalim, something empty. That's all. Now, the story doesn't end there, obviously, but if we focus on Cain and Abel, all we are told is that Cain killed Abel. How can you have a discussion about sibling rivalry when Abel doesn't even speak in the story? He is barely a character as his name implies. He's a vanishing breath, gone just like that, and you hear no more about him. Another example of eisegesis is the word church, ecclesia, in the Greek. We find the word church 
in the New Testament. We hear it a bit in the book of Matthew, heavily in the book of Acts, and heavily in Paul's epistles. And when we come across this word in our Bible studies, we think of our own church, our community, our buildings, our priest, our services, all those elements that we associate with our church, and we bring that understanding to our hearing of the New Testament. But the New Testament is not talking about our churches or our understanding of church as ourselves. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, begins his letter in chapter 1, verse 2, with, To the church of God which is at Corinth. And then, we Orthodox sort of puff up because we consider the church in Corinth the early church of which we are part, and we venerate our ancestors as we all do. The way that an American might puff up with a kind of reverence when reading about the pilgrims. It's the way that we are. It's the way the human mind works. But what does this word church mean in the New Testament? What does the Greek word ekklesia mean? The word ekklesia, which we translate as church, comes from the verb kaleo, which means to call. Ekklesia is the called one, so it means those who are called. But it's tricky. It's not self-standing. It is not independent of the caller. By definition, church doesn't exist without the caller. The caller comes first. The gathering is created by the caller, by the word of the caller. In the case of 1 Corinthians, God, through Paul, is the caller whose call is his teaching, which Paul brings to the Corinthians, and it is his teaching, his call, that brings about the church. There were people there, of course, but they were not church before his teaching. The call is the actor, and it forms the gathering. But this is not a one-time deal. You have to keep hearing the instruction. We have this in every liturgy. We are gathered, obviously in a building, but we are church when the epistle and the gospel are read over us. It has an authority. You know the term we use today, to be churched. When someone is unchurched, it means that they are not part of that religion. They are not under that particular teaching. Ecclesia was also a common word in the Greco-Roman world. It referred to the body politic. So Paul, as he so often does, is co-opting this term to suit his purpose. In 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't say the Corinthians are the church. He says they are the church of God. 
to make the distinction from the body politic. So to complete our discussion and to repeat, this program in keeping with the mother program, the Bible as Literature podcast, endorses exegesis being led by the text. And the best way to do that is to hear it. I use that word hearing deliberately and not reading because when you hear, you receive, you do not control. Now, of course, we read the Bible and that's fine. And there are lots of resources online at our fingertips for free that explain the meanings of words in the original Hebrew and Greek. And one should do that or seek out a teacher who knows. But the hearing is critical. There are free resources online and smartphone apps and audiobooks where you can hear the Bible read to you. I recommend a non-dramatized reading because even that is a kind of filter, a kind of interpretation where the reader is emphasizing certain things as they decide to. Start at the beginning and listen to the story without judgment. The next time you're at church, leave the service book in the pew and focus on hearing the readings. Remember that the Bible is not just another source of information from which we choose parts to form our own ideas. It is the constitutional text, meaning it is authoritative. So we are called to take its content seriously, to submit to it by hearing it, and to obey it. In the Bible, to hear means to obey. Look up the number 8085 in Strong's Concordance for the word in Biblical Hebrew. With that, we invite you to see with your ears. Till next time, this is Vexed. Vext is a production of the Ephesus School Network.